This is a podcast from the Business Times. For real estate investment trusts and property trusts in Singapore, 2023 has been a year to forget. Even after a very strong rebound from its lows in October, the IEDGE SREIT index is likely to end this year in negative territory. Of its 32 components, 21 are currently in negative territory on a total return basis, with some charting very large double-digit losses. But 2023 might be remembered for being an interesting year for REITs and property trusts from the corporate governance and investor activism perspective. It's probably fair to say that many investors were appalled at the slow response of Manulife US REIT sponsor group to unfolding trouble at the US office REIT over the past year. Many market watchers, I think, were also stunned that activist investor Quartz Capital managed to push through resolutions to internalize the manager of Sabana Industrial Trust at an EGM in the middle of this year. And last month, a group of unit holders of Dustin Retail Trust requisitioned an EGM for a similar purpose. These are all significant but underrated milestones in the development of Singapore's REIT and business trust sector. The story that's unfolding isn't just about a minority investor revolt against certain sponsor groups and managers, but also a rejection of the statutory protections that minority investors are supposed to rely on. The way I see it, Singapore's REIT and business trust ecosystem needs to evolve and adapt itself to the shifting demands of investors in order to maintain its vibrancy, especially as elevated interest rates continue to weigh on real estate valuations in 2024 and beyond. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the BT Mark to Market podcast. My name is Ben Paul, and I'm a senior correspondent at The Business Times. This series of podcasts, which is based on my weekly column in The Business Times, aims to provide analysis and insight on market trends and corporate issues in Singapore. We're in the month of December 2023, and many investors seem to be betting that the long period of monetary policy tightening around the world is coming to an end. In fact, the 10-year US Treasury bond yield, which was nudging 5% in October, has rolled back to just over 4.1% currently. Not surprisingly, this has sparked a strong rebound in stocks over the last two months. My own view is that the Fed and other central banks might not tighten monetary policy much more, but the cumulative impact of the very rapid tightening that happened over the past two years is still rippling through the financial system. This is a potentially perilous backdrop for REITs and property trusts. In the first place, all of these structures carry a certain amount of debt in order to boost their yields. Also, the valuation of their real estate assets is susceptible to economic conditions and interest rates. And we've seen how a precipitous decline in the book value of a REIT's properties can inflate its gearing and cause it to breach its financial covenants. My point here is that there will probably be a lot of scrutiny of REITs and property trusts when they report their financial results for 2023 early next year. So it's probably a good idea to tread carefully right now. I'll come back to the outlook for REITs later in this podcast, but let me first talk about one REIT that has already suffered a big decline in the value of its assets and is now trying to keep its lenders at bay. I'm referring, of course, to Manulife US REIT. Now, I did a whole podcast on this particular REIT earlier this year. That was episode 32 of this podcast series. At that point, a deal it was working on with Mirai Asset Global Investments had just fallen through and its sponsor group appeared to be preparing to rehabilitate the REIT itself. But a lot has happened since then. Most importantly, 
Dorit surprised everybody in July by announcing that its property portfolio had been devalued by a further 14.6% during the first six months of the year. This was on top of the 10.9% markdown it suffered for 2022, and it resulted in the REIT being in breach of one of its debt covenants and at risk of eventually breaching a number of other covenants. This basically put the REIT in danger of being liquidated by its lenders and triggered massive selling that eventually pushed the market value of its units below $0.05 cents in September. At the end of last month, Manulife US REIT sponsor group finally came up with a plan to salvage the REIT. There are three broad elements to this deal. The first is the repayment of $285 million US dollars of the REIT's debt. This will be largely funded by the sponsor providing the REIT with a six-year unsecured loan of $137 million US dollars and taking a property in Chandler, Arizona, known as Park Place, off its books for $98.7 million US dollars. The remaining $50 million US dollars will come out of the REIT's existing cash holdings. Secondly, Manulife US REIT will raise at least $328.7 million US dollars from the sale of some of its remaining properties over the next two years. The third element of this deal is that Manulife US REIT's lenders will waive its loan covenant breaches and extend the maturities of all its existing loans by one year. The lenders will also temporarily loosen some of its loan covenants. This will immediately put the REIT on a more stable financial footing. Besides having significantly lower aggregate leverage, the REIT will not have any loans maturing next year under this deal. Unit holders of Manulife US REIT are due to vote on this proposal shortly at an EGM scheduled for December 14. However, when the deal was announced, some investors were rather disappointed that Manulife US REIT's sponsor had not been more generous. For one thing, under the deal, Manulife US REIT is being made to raise $328.7 million US dollars through asset sales in a tough market environment. Its manager has said it will prioritize the sale of assets with the highest occupancy risk and capital expenditure requirements and the lowest total return potential. But the reality is that all of the REIT's assets are on the block, and it is possible that the REIT could end up being hollowed out of its best assets, the ones with the lowest occupancy risk and capital expenditure requirements and that have the highest total return potential. Manulife US REIT sponsor could have contained this risk by taking its weakest assets off its books instead of just Park Place in Arizona. Some investors were also disappointed that the $137 million US dollar loan from the sponsor will cost 7.25% per annum plus an exit premium of 21.16%. This amounts to an effective interest rate of approximately 10% per annum. The REIT's manager defended the deal, of course, essentially by saying that the deal has to also be fair to Manulife Group's own shareholders. It pointed out that there is no appetite for US office property debt at the moment, and that some alternative lenders, in their words, are asking for rates of as much as 18% per annum. The independent financial advisor to the REIT's manager, which is Deloitte and Touche Corporate Finance, also took the view that the sponsor loan is on normal commercial terms and is not prejudicial to the interests of Manulife US REIT and its minority unit holders, given the specific circumstances facing the REIT. But here's the thing. The external manager model adopted by Singapore-listed REITs is not normal commercial practice in most developed markets. This model has been accepted in Singapore partly because of what leading local sponsor groups bring to the table, that is, pipelines of assets that hold up well during economic downturns, as well as capital whenever required. 
Some investors will remember that Capital Land backed rights issues of more than $2 billion by its flagship REITs back in 2009 in the midst of the global financial crisis. And last year, in episode 18 of this podcast series, I talked about how Maple Tree Investments came up with $2.2 billion to essentially subsidize the downside for minority unit holders of two REITs under its umbrella that were merging. So even if Manulife US REIT manages to recapitalize itself, does it have a long-term future in the Singapore market? How much upside is there for its unit holders? I'm going to talk about that after this break. Break down useful financial tips with money hacks from the Business Times with correspondent Howie Lim. Every first and third Monday of the month, go to bt.sg podcasts to download. And now, back to Mark to Market from the Business Times. While Manulife US REIT sponsor was working on its plan to recapitalize the REIT and place it on a stronger financial footing, there was another interesting story unfolding in the REIT and business trust sector. On November the 23rd, a group of investors claiming to own more than 10% of Darsin Retail Trust requisitioned an EGM to remove its existing trustee manager and create an internal trustee manager. This was pretty much exactly what activist investor Quartz Capital did earlier this year at Sabana REIT. But Darsin is quite a different animal than Sabana. First of all, it's a business trust rather than a REIT, which means it's subject to somewhat different rules. Also, Dasin owns retail properties in China's Greater Bay Area, while Sabana owns industrial properties in Singapore. Perhaps the most important difference is that Dasin is actually in deep financial trouble. Over the past year, it's been hit by weak financial performance, a decline in the book value of its assets, and banks calling in their loans. The group of unit holders requisitioning the EGM also highlighted signs of internal strife and operational shortcomings at the existing trustee manager, including the fact that Dasin's annual report for 2022 has still not been issued. Since the beginning of this year alone, Dasin's unit holders have suffered a total return of minus 82.8%. By contrast, Sabana REIT is in relatively strong financial shape, and its units have actually held up quite well this year, delivering a small negative return of 4.9%. The similarity between Dasin and Sabana, if there is one, is that investors holding a significant proportion of their units appear to have lost their faith, not in the value of the trust assets, but in the rules governing these trusts that are supposed to protect their interests. In the case of Quartz and Sabana REIT, the trouble really began in 2020, when the board of Sabana REIT's manager recommended a lopsided merger with what is today ESR Logos REIT. The folks at Quartz felt that the terms were so unfair to minority unit holders of Sabana REIT that they dug their toes in and mobilised other minority unit holders to also oppose the deal. As it happened, they managed to block the merger. But Quartz continued to attack the board of Sabana REIT's manager after the proposed merger fell through. It has highlighted that Hong Kong-listed ESR Group owns the managers of both Sabana REIT and ESR Logos REIT, and the overlapping mandates of those two REITs creates a conflict of interest problem. Quartz has also questioned the appointment of directors at the manager of Sabana REIT and voted against authorizing the manager to issue new units. Then came Quartz's proposal earlier this year to remove the manager of Sabana REIT. This actually drew a very strong response from ESR Group. In fact, ESR Group even applied to the courts to try to stop the EGM. 
I covered a lot of what happened in episode 34 of this podcast series, and one of the things Sabana Reed's manager said at the time was that all its directors comply with the criteria of independence set out in the Singapore Code of Corporate Governance, the Securities and Futures Regulations, and the Singapore Exchange Listing Manual. ESR Group also said it does not have any nominee directors on the board of Sabana Reed's manager and pointed out that its interest in Sabana Reed's manager is held through an independent trustee with full discretion to make all decisions. But unit holders evidently felt that form of independence was not sufficient to protect their interests because the resolutions put forward by Quartz were voted true at the EGM on August the 7th. Now, the unit holders of Dasin, who are requisitioning an EGM to internalize its trustee manager, appear to feel the same way. In paragraph 44 of their requisition letter, they said the following, While the Business Trusts Act offers some statutory safeguards for unit holders to mitigate the potential conflicts of interest under the external management model, it is still preferable in Dasin's case for unit holders to have direct ownership and control of the trustee manager. The big question is whether minority investors can make a trust internalize its manager simply by requisitioning and voting at an EGM. The Sabana Reed case suggests this is not an entirely straightforward matter. One sticking point is that its trustee holds the view that setting up a new internal manager will require an amendment to the trust deed. This in turn will require the approval of unit holders by way of an extraordinary resolution. The problem is that ESR Group and its allies have a voting block of more than 24% of its units. This would make it nearly impossible for the extraordinary resolution to pass without its support. Quartz Capital obviously disagrees with the trustee's position on this matter. Earlier this week, the Sabana Growth Internalization Committee, or SJIG, said in a letter that the requirement for a trustee amendment and an extraordinary resolution can be avoided and it called on the Monetary Authority of Singapore and Singapore Exchange Regulation to provide guidance on whether Sabana Reed's trustee is interpreting the trustee correctly and proceeding with the internalization process in the proper fashion. SJIG also asked MAS and SGX Redco to weigh in on whether ESR Group should be barred from voting on any extraordinary resolution to amend Sabana Reed's trustee, given that the outcome of the vote would affect the fee income ESR Group receives. My own view on this matter is that MAS and SGX Redco should help develop a clear and practical process for internalizing the manager of a listed trust at the behest of minority investors. This could re-energize the REIT and business trust sector and lay the foundations for its next phase of growth. Just think about it for a moment. Investors are most likely to push for internalization at trusts that do not have strong sponsor groups behind them and that are failing to garner good valuations in the market. If these weaker trusts internalize their managers, they could immediately gain a certain cachet in the market, given the widely held view that the interests of internal managers are more closely aligned with those of its unit holders. This would create a more diverse and interesting market that draws in more investors. The problem is the process of internalizing the manager of a listed trust is uncertain at the moment. There is also the possibility of the sponsor group behind a REIT choosing to fight back in order to retain control. When Quartz Capital requisitioned the EGM to internalize the manager of Sabana Reed, concerns were raised as to whether the trustee even had the capability of setting up a new internal manager. 
There was also a lot said about the possibility of Sabana Reed's lenders calling in their loans in the event of a change in manager. MAS and SGX Redco should try to ensure that all parties in the REIT and Business Trust ecosystem, including the trustees as well as their legal advisors and even the lenders to these REITs, understand that everyone needs to adapt to the changing demands of investors in order for the market to remain vibrant and grow. This is especially so given the impact that significantly higher interest rates might have on the real estate sector in the months ahead when we may see some of the weaker trusts without strong sponsor groups begin to struggle and turn into zombies that trade at steep discounts to the value of their underlying assets. This brings me back to Manulife US REIT. Back in episode 32 of this podcast series, I said the REIT had a long, hard road ahead of itself and that a lot depended on what more its sponsor group might do, but that its units seemed to offer good value for a patient investor. Clearly, the REIT has lost some of its underlying value since then, but the proposed asset sales and support package from its sponsor could help it stay afloat until 2025, when the US office property market might begin recovering. In this scenario, the market value of Manulife US REIT could rebound significantly from its currently depressed levels. The REIT is not going to recover to levels at which it traded last year, of course, because it will have a smaller property portfolio and more expensive debt. Moreover, the expectation of a big equity fundraising exercise could weigh on its market price, at least until the US office property slump begins to show signs of coming to an end. So as a unit holder of Manulife US REIT myself, I'm still inclined to hold on to my units for now. The big question for me is whether the REIT will ever garner a market valuation sufficient to once more function as an effective asset securitization platform for the Manulife group. At the moment, my sense is that the REIT will not easily win back the confidence of the local market, and it's going to trade at a significant discount to its book value for a long time. If that happens, the REIT sponsor group should perhaps consider relocating elsewhere. It could offer to acquire the REIT's entire property portfolio at close to book value, with a view to eventually repackaging these assets in a new fund or trust in another market. This would immediately unlock value for unit holders in Singapore, and spare its sponsor group the difficult task of winning the trust of local investors once more. Of course, Manulife probably won't be able to adopt an external manager model for these assets in a different market, but that might eventually become harder to do in Singapore too. That's it for this episode of Mark to Market. I'm Senior Correspondent Ben Paul at The Business Times. This is a podcast by The Business Times. Find more BT podcasts at businesstimes.com.sg slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is meant to provide general information only. SPH Media accepts no liability for loss arising from any reliance on the podcast or use of third parties products and services. Please consult professional advisors for independent advice.